You are listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host, Diana Asatran. As always, we have a great lineup for you today, so let's get started. First, we have Ao Yun, um, Associate Editor for Deadwire ABS and RMBS uh, reporter. Al, what's on your mind? Well, today we're going to be talking uh, with uh, John Beach and the CEO of Turek about fix and flip lending and loans, and also uh, probably some uh, talk about the financing in that market. Fantastic. Next, we have Maurice Sadovi, Associate Editor at Deadwire ABS and a reporter uh, covering CMBS for us. Maura, what's on your mind? I'm going to be talking about Simon Property Group. They're, uh, you know, claiming to zig when others zag by buying old school retail. And there's been some a lot of uh, headlines about that this week that I'd like to dig into. Looking forward. And for the first time on ABS in Mind, we have Bill Weisbrot, who is Deadwire senior reporter at Deadwire Middle Market, joining us. Bill, what will you be talking about? We're going to talk about the cannabis industry and how liquidity is drying up in that industry and the collateral that companies used to borrow is um, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding that and what type of recovery lenders could be looking at given uh, that uncertainty. Great. Perfect. All right, Al, can we start with fix and flip lending now? Okay, sure. Well, uh, first of all, uh, welcome, John. Uh, John is the uh, CEO of uh, Tura Capital Partners. And it's a company that might say is on the forefront of what, what people call the institutionalization of the short-term residential loan market. Um, and it's something that's also on the radar for bond investors, uh, Turek having securitized many of its loans. Uh, welcome, John. Hey, thank you, Al. Great, great to be here. Thank you. If you could just, uh, maybe just kick us off by, uh, you know, telling us ba- about basically the state of play in your market right now, you know, why you think uh, buying fix and flip residential loans will be going to be a good long-term business and not just a quote-unquote trade, as uh, some people might have thought might have once thought? Sure. Well, I think there's a uh, there's a great opportunity in this space, and certainly for us. TORAC was started in 2016 uh, really to capitalize on an opportunity we saw in this market. You know, historically, this market has been dominated by local lenders who are lending their own money, generally at pretty high coupons, uh, and relatively inefficiently. There's been very little institutionalization of the space really before we got going in this. Uh, no bond issuance really dedicated to the space, so therefore a big opportunity. And so we came into the market, we established our company, and what we do is we partner with high-quality lenders around the country that originate loans to our credit standards. We define the credit box, we define the rules and the characteristics, and they make the loans and we acquire them on a flow basis. Uh, so we've acquired uh, multiple billions of dollars worth of loans at this point, uh, and we hold them for our own balance sheet. And in terms of your second question, the market has been around for, for a very long time. Uh, there's always a need for people who want to, generally investors who are buying properties, who want to buy them, renovate them, and either sell them or uh, rent them out and hold them. Uh, and so that market's been around for a long period of time. On average, every year, somewhere between 5 and 7% of single-family houses in the U.S. are bought and sold within one year period. And many of those are ultimately bought by investors. So that market is really what we focus on and, and what, where we see the opportunity. Okay. Can you give me uh, an example of a typical loan that's being made today that's something that fits within your parameters? Sure. Someone's buying a you know, $200,000 house in Cleveland, Ohio, and they make it a loan for $150,000 uh, against that house purchase. It's an investor who's buying that property. 
uh, that person wants to put in $50,000 of work uh, and ultimately sell that property for $300,000 or $325,000. So that's, that's right down the middle of the alleyway for us. And so the loan will be structured as initial funding of $150,000, and then that rehab dollars of $50,000 will be advanced over time as the work's done. And so we have a team of nationwide inspectors that go out, inspect the property, make sure the work's been done to work them like standards, and ultimately release that money over time. And so that funding will happen in a series of generally three to seven different fundings over the course of the loan. So that's really a down-the-middle, the road-type loan that we buy. Uh, we also uh, acquire multifamily loans, mixed-use loans, all over the United States. Um, so we have acquired loans in 47 states. Uh, the range is a really small loan trust would be seventy-five dollars or $100,000. And the biggest loan I think we've ever done is about $10 million. But the median is somewhere in the two to $300,000 range for us. Okay. Um, so you, you had mentioned that uh, you buy loans that are sort of, you know, within your within your own guidelines. Can you tell me how you manage to, you know, ensure that those, that uh, lenders are making those guidelines? And also, as a follow-up to that, what are you seeing away from TURAC? I mean, are you seeing other lenders do things that are, you know, uh, not so smart, let's say? Uh, well, I'm certainly, certainly happy to talk about what we do. So we uh, partner with lenders, and then we acquire loans on a flow basis. So at the time that we acquire the loans, we have a system for reviewing those loans, make sure the loan documents are there and accurate, uh, they reflect the loan terms, uh, make sure the credit score uh, and the other credit parameters are consistent with what we underwrote. Uh, and we check that with a team we have internally here at TORC, plus we also use third-party uh, due diligence firms that assist us in reviewing that. You know, what's interesting about this market is that a lot of the credit factors that people may be familiar with that are important uh, in the residential lending market are less important in this market. I like to say that experience is the FICO of this business. So when you're lending to investors who are rehabbing properties, it's really important to know, hey, have you done properties before? Have you bought them successfully and sold them? Are you able to manage the budgets accurately? Are you able to predict what house prices are going to be at the end when the property is done? Uh, are you able to get the right contractors and the right plumbers? We all have experience with hiring, uh, you know, probably hiring contractors for our prop for our own houses, and it's you know very expensive sometimes and hard. So, if you're in the market and you do that regularly, uh, you're able to do that much more effectively. So, as a loan, as a person who acquires loans, we spend a lot of time looking at the experience of the borrowers. How many deals have you done? Validating that, making sure they have uh, been successful in the past, because those borrowers are more likely to perform better than someone who's doing their first ever deal. Uh, so that's really important. So from a credit standpoint, we think real big drivers are uh, make sure you have experienced customers, number one. Number two, loan to cost. You know, just like every kind of loan, you want to make sure the borrower has a lot of skin in the game. Because uh, people who put their own money into deals are going to perform a lot better than people who don't put their own money into deals. So we look for substantial equity cushions in the loans that we acquire, uh, both from a value standpoint and from a cost standpoint. Uh, and we also look at uh, the rehab scope. You know, is the amount of work that is being estimated to be done enough to bring that property up to market standards? Is that rehab budget sufficient? Can it get done on time? Uh, and is that property at the end going to be a property that's consistent with the neighborhood? You certainly don't want to go finance properties, and everyone knows this wherever you live. There's one house that's bigger than every other house in the neighborhood that sits in the market for a long time that's hard to sell. Uh, we try to avoid that by looking at a lot of data a zip code basis to really pick properties that ultimately are consistent with the neighborhoods, not overbuilt or not underbuilt. But we found those are uh, very likely to sell quickly and generally have a lot more liquidity than other properties. And that will be very different market by market around the country. In certain areas of the country, you know, very high value properties are, are normal. 
okay. certain areas of the country, they're not. And so you're really looking for that neighborhood. Does that property fit into that neighborhood? Uh, is the value consistent with the area? And is the ultimate build of that property consistent? So these are factors that are really important in this market that are probably less okay. important than traditional residential lending. Can you tell me how you're using technology in your business? I see you've, uh, you've made some moves toward automation. Yeah, we just hired a, a technology officer to join us here at Torque, and we're really excited about that because we deal with a lot of different originators that use a lot of data. So technology is a way for us to improve the way we interact with our origination partners, letting them submit data to us uh, correctly, letting, letting us review files very efficiently, and giving them quicker and more consistent and more rapid feedback and sort of the status of their loan files. So it's a way for us to improve the throughput experience uh, for our origination partners who are working with us. Okay, thank you. And can you describe the competition for the assets you buy? Uh, is it more or less than a year ago? I'm just trying to get a sense of the popularity uh, of uh, this business amongst other investors out there. Yeah, there, there are definitely investors who have seen what we're doing and are doing some version of what we're doing. Uh, there's more now than there were certainly three or four years ago when we got started. I would say what's different about us is that most of those investors are some version of, you know, when they go to the originators, you know, show me what you got and I'll tell you if I like it. Uh, which originators don't really like because they have to make the loan and they don't really know if they're able to sort of get capital for that loan. We're the opposite. We give clear guidelines. Our originators know exactly what we want to buy. We're kind of like the Fannie Mae of this industry in that respect. And they know that we're going to buy those loans consistently and reliably. We bought loans every single week since we got started. As a matter of the snowstorms, hurricanes, power outages, you name it, we're providing consistent, regular liquidity to our origination partners, which really differentiates us from a lot of others who have made value loans in a different way. Okay. Great. Well, that's all the time we have today for Fix and Flip. But uh, thank you very much for joining us, John. Look forward to having you again on the podcast in the future. Great. Thank you, Al. Okay. Thank you, Al and John. And from Fix and Flip, we'll go to a little larger segment of real estate, uh, commercial real estate. And Maura's retail segments are always su super popular. So, Maura, what do you have for us today? Well, this week, Simon Property Group announced that it was buying Taubman. There had been a lot of chatter. Uh, there has been a fair amount of M&A chatter, but that... Uh, but they uh, kicked off the week with the um, announcement of a $3.6 billion deal for Taubman. Um, Simon is uh, one of the biggest uh, mall operators in the country with approximately uh, about 175 properties, not all regional malls. But um, and, then, and then they bought uh, Taubman, which is a smaller portfolio um, with approximately about 24 high-end malls uh, for what equates to a $3.6 billion deal. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a fair lot of uncertainty of what this means, because every time there's been a deal or a bankruptcy, um, there's a lot of optimism about, you know, reorganizations rather than liquidation. This appears to be, um, you know, people are holding back from, you know, there's expectation that these are high-end malls that will be remain open and that this isn't a death knell for them, uh, for the portfolio uh, by far. But there's a lot of uncertainty around this purchase and what it means for uh, for retail stores and uh, in investors in the loans that back these these malls, which uh, there are about uh, there's about 819 million in CMBS and also uh, other uh, debt, uh, non-securitized debt on these properties that are you know the Taubman owns. So um, that sort of uh, was a big 
piece of news uh, from a contra- uh, you know the biggest what is turning into the one of the biggest contrarian investors, which is uh, Simon Property Group, and that comes on the heels of them this week. Um, the court uh, approved their purchase of uh, an eighty-one million dollar purchase of uh, Forever Twenty One. Uh, it's not just Simon; it's a, they're, they're part of a consortium, but for, they're buying a retailer, which is uh, they are one of the biggest landlords buying their, uh, one of their uh, biggest tenants. You know, an effort to, uh, I guess, stabilize their properties. Um, but that also will have ripple effects on um, lenders and investors and CMBS. Uh, uh, it's a Forever 21 is in at the filing at the at the time of the bankruptcy filing. There were about 800 Forever 21 locations, not just Forever 21. They have a number of other brands, but um, around the world. Um, and uh, we're still trying to get clarity on what it means uh, for the, the all those locations. They originally said they'd they'd close about 200 in the U.S. That's down to then they went down to about 100. But slowly the the, the numbers are creeping up, and people are trying to parse the numbers and figure out whether their collateral is gonna, is safe or not from those closures. So you have um, this week uh, a, a contrarian buyer who's. Um, my takeaway, who's putting some money behind their uh, their view that malls are not dead, but uh, it's uncertain how they're going to navigate that uh, the, the landscape with the you know following these big deals. Interesting. And are your uh, what you're hearing from sources? Do they expect M and A to be a bigger trend in this sector this year? I think people do. Yeah, there's always speculation who's either who's going to close or who's going to buy. There's bigger speculation, uh, more uh, chatter about who's going to, you know, who might file for bankruptcy um, or, or just close more stores. We had Macy's announce more than 100 store closures. Sears is continuing to close more than uh, previously uh, planned. So uh, I was talking to one analyst who said, uh, you know, previously the big question was, you know, when would Sears file for bankruptcy and uh, what impact would it have? That the answer still isn't clear. Um, They filed for bankruptcy, but um, just the impact is still extending. uh, You know, uh, it's it's still not. Clear how many will remain, um, and there's optimists saying that they're they're remaking those year stores as, as mixed use. But the analyst said for for CMBS, you know, they're they're still waiting to see, you know, what impact that now now they have the new Taubman uh, malls that they'll be watching. There's the uh, the underwritten cap rate for that deal was 6.2, which is um, higher than uh, some might have expected for a high-end malls. Uh, everyone's uh, trying to figure out if, if that, you know, if you b- valued the malls, a uh, high cap rate means that it's uh, uh, it's uh, valued at a lower dollar amount. Um, but anyway, uh, the investors in the CMBS are trying to, uh, they need to match up the the uh, collateral to the the uh, valuation that uh, Taubman put on them to determine, you know, whether or not their their bets are, uh, you know, in line with uh, that valuation. Well, thank you um, so much, uh, Maura. I guess we'll wait and see um, who's the next victim of this retail apocalypse that's been going on for a while now. And we're off to um, last but not least. Bill, can you give us an update of what you're seeing in the cannabis business? Yeah. So, uh, Deanna, we have a collaboration between Debtwire Middle Market and Debtwire ABS coming out 
shortly on this topic. And you had something late last year about cannabis companies turning more to debt markets as opposed to equity due to uh, just equity investment really drying up in the space. Uh, so as these companies turn more to debt, it's also, you know, not, not only has equity investment been drying up, but liquidity in general has been drying up for these companies. There's not as much exuberance as there was, say, two or three years ago. And you can really see that in the share prices in some of these uh, bigger companies just this week um, or just this month. Med, the CEO of MedMen, which is a retailer, a cannabis retail business, stepped down. Uh, was also a founder, Aurora, a Canadian company, Canadian producer. The CEO also stepped down, so uh, who's also a founder. So we're seeing some issues uh, in this industry. Meanwhile, as you wrote, and as we're seeing, these businesses raise debt to uh, to finance their operations. So as as problems persist, you know, we saw in in Canada a couple of smaller companies filed for CCAA bankruptcy protection. Um, but what's the collateral that they were using to uh, to raise this debt? A lot of it was real estate. They did sale leasebacks. A lot of it was, um, in some cases, we heard from sources that they even here in the U.S. used the product itself as collateral. They used licenses, equipment, uh, receivables, uh, the, you know, the whole range of things. So um, meanwhile, you know, there's there's a lot of questions because this is such a nascent industry. And for the lenders, what's if they if they're trying to recoup in the event of a bankruptcy and a liquidation, what's this collateral really worth? In the case of real estate or equipment, it often comes down to how can it be repurposed for something besides cannabis? Just to back up for a second, in Canada, one of the issues driving this downturn is an oversupply of of the product. So prices, selling prices are coming down and that's in turn hurting, uh, hurting these companies. So if, you know, there's an oversupply, that means lack of demand for associated equipment. So can it be used for something else in the U S the market and the, the laws depend vary from state to state. So can lenders foreclose, can lenders take over a product or cannabis producing products or licenses? It, it really depends. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to be worked out. Uh, and that's kind of what we got into in, in this story. And lenders are really going to have to, um, it, there might be a reckoning coming and they might be facing a lot less recovery than they had expected uh, based on what they were lending against. So, Interesting. And I know, as you mentioned, we'll have a story coming out um pretty shortly uh, on this, but would you say that the concerns around what you can recover if things go south are top of mind for the debt investors? Is that kind of what's holding some of them back? I think there there's that definitely. And they have to balance that, especially in the US against the fact that they can get pretty good returns, given the fact that banks won't touch this industry compared to other asset classes. You know, it varies from state to state. So, you know, some states licenses are non-transferable. So if you lend against the license, you have to be sure that you or a receiver can take that over or and if you don't have a license, but your loan is secured by the product, can you or a receiver then liquidate the product or dispose of it? These are all things that lenders really should need to be or should be thinking about when they get into this industry that um, given the expectation of more distress and more downturn, uh, increased down increased insolvencies among some of these companies, 
that we're really going to see play out in 2020. At least that's the expectation of people who are in this industry. Right. And I think that was um, the key discussion, a discussion point among you know people we spoke, spoke to for the story. Everybody expects, you know, more M&A, more insolvencies, more companies go down. And yet um, the debt that goes into this space keeps going up while you know, stocks are just going down continuously since last year, I'd say. Yeah. And, and as that debt goes up, you know, what's it really what's it really backed by? This is all very interesting to me because, I mean, as someone who is really not involved in the story, but just yeah. anecdotally speaking, you know, I was driving up to the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts the other weekend, driving by through Great Barrington where there's a theory wellness. And uh, you got people like winding out the door 40 feet, 40 people deep trying to get into this place. So it's uh, it's sort of, you know, hard to fathom that there's actually trouble in this business financially. Yeah, well, that's one thing I learned in reporting this is that it, in the U.S., it really varies. The market really varies from state to state. Where in Canada, since it's federally legal, there's a nationwide market. But say Massachusetts, companies could be on better footing due to um, supply a better supply demand balance than say Oregon or California. Especially Oregon, there's there's real uh, oversupply. And Maura, I know you've been looking at this sector too uh, from your end. Um, is there anything that uh, you've heard that you think should be mentioned here? Yeah, what I think is interesting um, in terms of, uh, I went to a recent conference here in Illinois where they just kicked off um, recreational uh, cannabis. Uh, It became legal this year. So there was a lot of fanfare, a lot of lines. Uh, You know, some people say, you know, uh, could it be sort of a panacea for the problems in retail that we're seeing, at least some, some, an area that's growing. Um, But when I went to this conference, uh, there were a number of panelists that were bullish, but they said, you know, essentially to landlords in the audience, pay off your debt. Uh, You really, you know, mortgages generally prohibit leasing to cannabis businesses. So we advise generally pay off your debt or find a, if you need to find a family, uh, family office or private equity that'll lend to you. But, um, you know, basically property that's free and clear will do better uh, as a cannabis retail or, you know, a a place where you grow uh, a grow house or any other type of operation. So I thought that was uh, interesting. But then also, if you do need the debt, uh, they said the mortgages will be at an interest rate of 10 to 15 percent. So, yeah, good high yield opportunity for investors. Is that because they were saying that nationally regulated banks just won't, they won't finance this industry? They won't approve a a lease to Mm -hmm. a retail cannabis dispenser. So generally, it's too big a headache, pay off that debt, get a, get a, get, if you need debt, find, you know, replace it or refinance with, with one of these you know, uh, more flexible lenders, uh, high, which is high yield. So if you, you know, it's not a get rich quick scheme, basically, is what they were telling landlords that were hungry for, you know, info about how to fill their buildings, you know, which are, you know, seeing higher vacancies, the retail sector, that is. Well, we're going to have to stop but, here, um, but uh, everybody should keep their eye out for our story to come out um, soon uh, on that wire around the cannabis sector. And thanks, everyone, for joining uh, today. Thank you, Al and Bill and Maura and John and our producer, Anthony, for making this happen. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. 
If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.